Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show, which you can listen to Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. And I'd like to start by thanking everybody who has made this possible. I'd like to thank my agent. I don't have an agent. My wife. I do have a wife, incredibly. And everyone who believed in doing politics without the boring bits. Yes, amazingly, I've been nominated for my first radio award. Found out this morning, shortlisted for the by the Broadcasting Press Guild, ooh, as Audio Broadcaster of the Year. Although it seems like it's more like everyone who's on the radio at ten o'clock, uh, because I'm up against Clara Ampho from BBC Radio One, who's on air at the same time as me, uh, Frank Skinner, who's on Absolute at ten o'clock on Saturdays, and Emma Barnett, who was on Five Live at ten a.m. Uh, but found it too much going up against me for three hours. So now just does one hour on something called Radio Four. No, me neither. Anyway, uh, they're all legends and they know what they're doing. And now the judges are actually going to have to listen to my show. So there's no chance I will win. But uh, it does mean that we can celebrate just being nominated, which is a good excuse to open a bottle or maybe two. But not until we finish the podcast, of course. Coming up, our big thing today is the culture war. Huh, what is it good for? Absolutely nobody knows. We've got some exclusive polling which reveals that far from gripping the country... Only 4% of people even know what the culture war is. We'll find out what that all means for politics. But first, it's our columnist panel. It's a Thursday, so it must be Esther Webber and Robert Crampton. Let's kick off with... Um, I'll tell you what, let's, let, we've, we've, we've already talked a little bit about education already. Let's go straight to heading to the north. Uh, we were found out this week that Robert Jenrick is sending a load of his civil servants to Wolverhampton. Uh, and now uh, Rishi Sunak has chosen a northern base for a, a new Treasury HQ. Um, he's choosing between Newcastle and Leeds, apparently. They're the two main uh, f- uh, front runners. Is this a good idea, Esther? Or is it just um, sort of more possibly tokenism or whatever? Because ultimately, if all ministers are in Westminster... And every other government department is in Westminster. That's still going to be where the the, the mm. big machine is, isn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think the problem is that unless you move the centre and the personnel of decision-making, then it ends up looking like a bit of a kind of superficial operation. Um But what I would say is I was talking to some people in the Department of Housing or the Ministry for Housing, as it is now, and um, they were saying actually the news about Wolverhampton has gone down pretty well um, because we're just working in a different way now and maybe people are not so fussed about being in London and the idea of possibly moving somewhere new and having a different quality of life is, is a bit more appealing. Maybe that's you know, maybe you're right, um, uh, Esther. Robert, what do you think? Is, is, is the experience of the last 12 months made us all realise that actually living somewhere a bit further away from London, you can probably have a bigger house, nicer quality yeah. of life, you can still do the same job and you know, maybe go into London once a week, once a month? Yeah, I think it's great news, actually. I think we're all a bit obsessed with London. And I, and I don't think, uh, I think it'll be received well in the in the north, either in Leeds or Newcastle, wherever it turns out to be. I don't think they'll regard it as tokenistic. I think they'll regard it as um, as jobs, uh, which is what is needed. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, the decision making is probably, obviously will stay in London, probably always will be in London. But a, a great many civil service jobs are 
I mean, they're regular jobs. You can do them. You can do them where, where, wherever you are, and you can be a a public servant in the north and have a very good quality of life, better than you can in the better than your quality of life in the southeast in terms of house prices and uh, transport and the, all the rest of it. So I think it's good news. And I suppose the key, yeah, the, the 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 way that technology and a slight change in in uh, attitudes might actually make it work this time. Because I remember even, in fact, even during the last twelve months, I think Pretty Patel in particular was very keen that officials were in the Home Office uh, in person to brief and that sort of thing. It was always defeats the point of uh, home working. And it maybe they'll achieve something that because I remember writing about this about a year ago, I think, um, writing about this and about I think Harold McMillan had sort of kicked it off with the suggestion of moving civil servants out of London, and almost every prime minister since Edward Heath, Margaret Thatcher, John Major, Tony Blair, you know, they all said we were going to do this, and they, actually what happened was the, the the civil service in London most of the time just got bigger. But maybe maybe technology and it, you know desire for a bigger garden might work this. And way. it has happened. I've said before it's happened. You've got the passport office in Liverpool. You've got you know DVLA. Yeah, that's Swansea. true. Those distinct. BB, individual yeah. BBC went to Salford and everyone thought, you know, the world would end and it's actually been fine, you know, so it's, it's, it's great. It does sort of, that, 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 the BBC thing does make me sort of slightly laugh because the idea was they would get out of London and, uh, you know, they'd get a broader range of voices on the radio and it turned out they could have just been using Zoom like the rest of us. Uh, yeah. you know, it is possible to get voices of people across the country without building a big headquarters, you know, and actually the obsession with getting people into studios. Who needs to be in a studio, he says. So yeah, well, spare well, at home. Right, let's talk. Uh, uh, really, this this uh, story just really tickled me today. Germany's biggest newspaper, Built, has been praising the UK's incredible vaccine success with a front page headline saying dear brits we envy you Esther, mm. two world wars one world cup and now the <laughs> vaccine race well i think that that may shift relations like nothing else before i think um that you know the most of the things we talk about in terms of german british relationships are in way way in the past and you know some people would say we're perhaps a bit too fixated on them uh, <laughs> whereas this this is very current and it's a real thing and it's affecting people's lives the fact that the um the provision and the rollout has really kind of fallen short of the mark in lots of European countries and um and fair play to to the Germans for kind of for pointing to examples of success which maybe they might have been more skeptical of before this all played out. It is weird at the risk of comp- Continuing a footballing analogy, it is. A, it does seem like it's a it's sort of a pandemic of two halves. This Robert, the, the Germans, everyone wanted to be like Germany in the first half. Uh, you know, and they were doing very well in terms of keeping the yeah. levels of the of cases down, but then seemed to be really struggling with the um, with the rollout of the vaccine. Yeah, this is the equivalent of the five one in in Munich, isn't it? In, uh, <laughs> in two thousand one, was it? Uh, a hatchet from Michael Owen. Uh, yeah, no, it's good. I mean, a lot of uh, it's been a real fashion for uh, it's, uh, loving all things German. Not least your you know your contributor yesterday, John Kampfner, wrote his book about how we should all be more like Germany. And in many ways, obviously, John's completely correct. So it's quite nice to have that redressed slightly. Uh, I can't pretend that I'm not feeling slightly smug about this, although it's obviously I had absolutely nothing to do with it. 
uh, yeah, it's good, uh, and it's good, and it's good and built to have uh, to have exposed it. Uh, but President Macron was not was not very helpful with his remarks about AstraZeneca, and it's good that there's a counterweight to that. Well, yeah. Although interestingly, there's this, there's a poll in Germany which found that uh, they've only delivered. Uh, no, that half the population would rather wait than receive the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. That this, this sort of public suspicion, actually, like you said, fueled by political leaders. Um, uh, you know, everyone here, desperate, you know, get your sleeve up, get, yeah. get whatever vaccines going. Yeah. But it, it across, yeah. across Europe, there does seem to be a real problem with um, people having their doubts about the Oxford yeah. vaccine. There was it's sorry, absolutely Esther. crazy. Sorry, I just think if. If, you know, some of our MPs have been saying some of the things that Macron had said, they've been sort of hauled in front of the whip and given a good talking to because um, the spreading of some of the information that wasn't necessarily, shall we say, um, borne out by evidence does seem to have had an effect on people's attitude to certainly to AstraZeneca vaccine the the mayor of berlin as to his credit as, as to his, has been very sensible he said if you don't if you refuse the astrazeneca you have to go to the back of the queue uh so oh that's good i mean that's and yeah. i suppose, and I suppose that the the impact then politically is slightly different isn't it because if people if the reason that people weren't getting their jabs was down to sort of bureaucratic incompetence then maybe people might start getting cross with uh, their political leaders across europe if it's because they don't want it i mean it's a different problem and i, th- I yeah. saw some stats the, the, i think it is still the case or it, the, the the uk has now administered more doses than the whole of europe put together yeah uh, we, we've the whole of the eu about, put together we've vaccinated about 25 percent of the population in germany and france are about four percent yeah, which is just extraordinary. But I just wonder how that plays out politically, Esther, in terms of if people aren't blaming the, the their leaders because they're well, they're, it's themselves to blame. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there will be there will be some sort of political reckoning though, because um, in terms of what's happening here, uh, Boris Johnson didn't invent the vaccine; he didn't patent it or anything like that but obviously the government has been its approach is responsible for the for the delivery and the success so they will reap some political dividends from that and equally if I were German or French I'd be wanting to know why Macron had been handling this so badly yeah, it does. It does seem. Yeah, it does seem. Odd. And when when there are pictures of Brits going absolutely wild on June the twelfth, um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, then uh, you know, uh, uh, that, you know, they've still got weeks or months of uh, of bet, you know, restrictions bet, and waiting. I bet French customs still won't let us in though. <laughs> well, we don't want to go there. We don't want to go there. Not, <laughs> not with our British pubs. We do um, if we've been vaccinated. But, um, we do. We're all we're all looking for the uh, looking forward to the end of lockdown, Robert. You've written your column this week in, in Saturday's Times about how you feel like you've got a bit, I don't know, eccentric. Yeah, just feeling everything. Uh, just just sort of much more. I mean, I'm up and down kind of character anyway, but I've, I've been much more up and much more down than than usual. Uh, I was watching Death in Paradise the other day, and I got really upset because I thought they were going to kill off one of my favourite characters. And. <laughs> 
And I, I mean, I got properly upset, and I just thought, "This is Robert, you know, get a grip of yourself." And I think, I think it's, uh, I think it's. I mean, we've, we, I don't want to joke about it because obviously there's been serious mental health issues going on. But I think even at, at, at a lower level than than, than proper uh, mental ill health, there's been a, there's a kind of uh, uh, what's it? Yeah, you, you know, kind of fibrility, if that's a word, febrileness. Uh, about all our behaviour, just just going, you know, just going a bit, going a bit strange. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, being strangely moved by. I mean, we we watched the last episode mm. of Call My Agent last night, and I felt myself getting a, <laughs> unnecessarily emotional about a TV show fight. that yeah. didn't, uh, yeah. existed like three weeks ago. <laughs> exactly. um, uh, <laughs> what about you, Esther? Have you felt felt yourself going a bit strange? Yes, I I very much recognise what you're both talking about. I, I think. Everything is very heightened in a weird way because because actually so little is happening that like very small things going right or very small things going wrong can have like a huge impact more than they would normally. And I think I particularly feel it at the weekend when you sort of stop work and you think, now what? So yeah, I definitely recognise that and I think it's um it's fine to sort of say we're all feeling it weird, even if yeah. it's not a really deep mental health problem. Oof. Yeah, my mate Ollie's got this theory that part of what got us through last year was we had all these things in the diary, uh whether it's holidays or you know concerts or family get-togethers or whatever it was and each one eventually got crossed off but there was always the hope well maybe that thing in september might be a go maybe that thing in october yeah. might be okay and the problem with this lockdown has been we've got nothing in the diary nothing is planned and actually that now now we can start filling up the diary a bit you don't mind the fact we've got literally nothing to do this weekend because yeah. you know in a f- few weeks time you, you might have something uh, including music festivals uh, yeah. are back wedding and leads so we've been asking for covid compliant bands and songs have you, either you got any ideas I, I got the wrong end of the stick with this. I just I thought it was uh, it was not a partner anyway. I like I, my, one of my favourite bands, The Supremes, did a lovely song called "Someday We'll Be Together." I think that would be nice. Oh, that's good. That no, that counts. Yeah. Allowed, I that think was... that's exactly the sort of thing that we want. And um, here comes um, the sun, Beatles. Here, here comes the sun. That's very good. What about you, Esther? Yeah. Uh, well, it was just reminding me that I actually went to Reading when I was sixteen, and I saw. <laughs> Eminem and D12, they're the main acts, I remember, but now I think it'd be Vitamin D12. Esther Webber and Robert Clanton, and of course you can read them both in The Times. Uh, Robert writes for Times 2 and for The Times magazine, and Esther writes for The Times Red Box Morning Email. To read them both, you just need to get yourself a Times subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, Culture War. Huh. What is it good for? Absolutely nobody knows. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Matt Jolly. This is the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this... Culture. Absolutely nobody knows. Yes, so uh, the culture war. We hear a lot about it. You might read a lot about it, or maybe you don't. Uh, it, for, to the extent that um, everyone is talking about it, politicians and journalists anyway, what does the public make of it? Does anyone know even what it means? And what impact is it actually having on politics right now? Well, uh, I'm joined now by Matt Smith from YouGov, the polling firm. who's carried out some exclusive polling into exactly this for us. Hi, Matt. Hi there, Matt. Thanks for having me. Now, normally we might get you to ask complicated questions of the public, you know, what, how they feel about different issues, who's up, who's down uh, and all of that sort of thing. This time round, you asked a very s- simple question. What did you ask and what, what was the response? Sure. So we asked very simply uh, people to tell us what they think the culture war means. Now, if, if I just roll back a, a second to the last time I was on your show where we were discussing political ease and whether or not people had even heard and thought they understood some of these terms, we found that 31% of Britons, already a not exactly great number, um, said they thought they knew what, uh, what uh, the culture war meant. But um, now, have, now we've dug deeper into this and we've asked the public to tell us <laughs> to actually define for us what it means. And, and n- now we can see that only really about 4% actually um, gave us an answer that sort of looked remotely correct. Uh, when, uh, when we asked you know, them to define it, 76% just outright admitted, you know what, I, I don't know. And then another 22% gave something that's not really the right answer. So in fact... You know, simply put, <laughs> nobody knows what a culture war is. And so, so for the purposes of just for clarity, the thing I think this is right. The thing that we're calling the sort of the correct answer is that the culture culture war is a disagreement on preserving and viewing culture, history, and national identity. That that's the thing that you know that's to do with uh, statues and uh, and yeah, all that exactly. sort of stuff that, that plays it plays into it. I mean, the fact that um, you, you know three uh, percent uh, said a clash of ideologies, two percent said a clash between different classes, some sort of class war between. You know, the working class mm. or the upper class, where it might be. So what does this tell us then about the, the sort of the national political conversation and the impact that that's having on uh, you know, actual public opinion? Sure. I mean, I guess it just goes to show what a misnomer calling it the national political conversation is, because what it really is, is the Westminster political conversation. It's a conversation being had between uh, journalists and public affairs consultants and politicians way above the heads and interest levels of the entire public. Um, And, you know, it just it just goes to show ultimately how um, insignificant this this kind of thing is for your average member of the public and obviously it's a pretty good indication as well as to uh, how important people might be expected to consider the various components of the culture war to be 
And what about on the specific issues? Do you do polling on things like statues or pronouns or um, uh, sure. so, flags yeah, or whatever? The, the things, the things, the, like the, the the specific issues which sometimes get wrapped up in this 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 bubble of culture war. Sure, and, and so we do on bits and pieces. So I should just give a few caveats, of course, is that when, when you ask someone about a very specific thing, they will give you their opinion on it. But what it's not very good at sort of showing is in the scheme of things, how important that is relative to other stuff. So, for instance, uh, when, we, uh, when we asked about um, uh, sort of uh, pride in the British Empire, only one in five people said it should be it's something that they think people should be more ashamed of than uh, proud of. And then you've got uh, a third of people think it's something more to be proud of than ashamed of. And then another third or so who are saying that, you know, it's something to be neither proud or ashamed of. But what that doesn't really show is in the scheme of things, you know, how important that that is relative to, you know, the, the, the big and obvious stuff like coronavirus and stuff like that. You know, when we, we, we run a tracker on what the most important issues are in the country to people. And at the moment, you know, you've got health on 60 percent and economy on 57 percent. And if you were ever to sort of, um, you know, throw in one of these particular issues in, you know, you'd see that languishing on low single digits. Yeah, I suppose that's the thing. Yeah, there's a difference between forcing someone to take a position on it when you ask the question. It's quite difficult to capture. To what extent do you give a monkeys about this as an issue? Uh, the, the, I suppose the thing is, the thing because I was writing about this for um, the Times this morning, I mean, the, in America, like everything, it's just an import from America. And the culture in America divides mm-hmm. along pretty straightforward partisan lines, Republican versus Democrat. In the UK, to the extent that it exists, it seems to cut across more on Leave versus Remain rather than Labour conservative and you have this sort of you know uh you know loosely lazily generalized as older northern less well-educated working class salt of the earth types on one side and then you've got sort of younger posho university types who spend all their time just tweeting you know social awareness messages which is totally simplistic and and offensive to both camps i accept that but the interesting thing with this was um the uh even even looking at Leave Remain, 75% of Leavers didn't know what the culture war was compared to 72% of Remainers. And it was uh, women, uh, 80% of women, 83% of working class and retired voters also had no idea. So it, it's not as if this is particularly striking a chord with any particular group. No, no. I mean, again, that, that it, it, if, I, if I might say that the actual divide is therefore between real people and political people. You know, it's it's uh, it's one of those classic things where it's 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 something that can only be understood if uh, you make politics your your livelihood or your hobby. And uh, and obviously that that doesn't apply to very many people at all, regardless of, uh, of you know, their, their partisan leanings. You know, uh, there's there's nothing inherent in being a conservative or being a Labour voter or being a lead voter or being a uh, Remain voter that that makes you substantially more interested in politics. And then, of course, you know, even within the the, the fact that uh, even within the concept of being interested in politics, you know, getting down to the sort of real minutiae in which the sort of culture wars occupies rather than the sort of broader thrust of voting intention or sort of, you know, NHS funding or something like that. As ever, a really useful corrective on uh, the things that people in Westminster talk about compared to the rest of the country. Matt Smith from YouGov, uh, really good to uh, talk to you. So let's speak to one of those people, as, as Matt was describing, who makes his livelihood, and perhaps you could say hobby, uh, out of politics. Stephen Swinford is the political editor of the Times. Hi, Steve. 
Good morning, Matt. Uh, so let's talk about this. And to the extent that Downing Street sees that it's a warrior in the culture war, if you like, is, is this something... And it feels maybe it's slightly, it comes and goes in waves. We have sort of, you know, attacks on the BBC and you're trying to suggest that someone wants to take down every statue of Winston Churchill last year. And then it sort of goes out of fashion a bit. And then we've had another run recently. Uh, Robert Jenrick on statues, Gavin Williamson on what he's called strengthening free speech at universities, despite not a lot of evidence that there's an issue with free speech in universities. Oliver Dowden, you know, telling museums that they've got to keep their controversial objects. To, to what extent it, does does the does Downing Street think that the culture war is a real thing? So you've got a prime minister who, for a lot of his career, when he was a journalist and a commentator, made made a kind of career out of writing polemics with really... Uh, strong cultural war references in them uh, and that was something that he did a lot but to be honest now where Downing Street is their focus is entirely on getting out of the coronavirus crisis so I think as your piece says today Matt there are kind of some cheap headlines to come out of initiatives such as the you know getting up debates on these things but actually it feels very very odd and it feels very surreal to read those stories because we're in the midst of a pandemic and we're on the cusp of a recession. So that your piece today is, is particularly good. Your, your, your reference to the World War II Japanese soldiers still fighting in the jungle in the 1950s, because that's what it feels like. It feels like culture wars have kind of always been around and they've always been around in Britain as part of the, the British media. But at this point in time, they feel particularly out of place and odd. And that is entirely what your column's about, Matt. And it does feel weird. It, it doesn't feel quite the time to be having kind of strange debates about different aspects of relatively small aspects of our, our culture and the way we look at it. And it felt partly uh, that this was born out of the success, if you like, of the Brexit debate in uh, basically forcing almost every person, in the, almost nobody in the country really had a position of saying, I don't really mind either way, to be honest. I mean, I, I basically got a bit fed up with it. But I mean, uh, but in, in terms of sort of galvanising people into camps, Brexit and uh, leave and remain, uh, that um, that seems to be the sort of underpinning in some of the most outspoken voices in church, still trying to wage the culture war are also outspoken voices in favour of, of Brexit. But it feels to me like they slightly missed the point that the 2019 election result was actually a vote to, to end Brexit, to stop forcing us all into taking hardline positions on something. Um, and that people wanted to move on from that. But th th this sort of sense of trying to keep that grievance going and, and think, well, OK, so some people who voted for Brexit quite like Winston Churchill. Why don't we make out that everyone's trying to take down a statue of Winston Churchill, even if, they, even if that isn't really the case? The interesting thing, Steve, is that Keir Starmer so far hasn't really fallen into that trap. I mean, there was early on he faced some criticism for taking the knee and that sort of thing and, and you know, the question of whether or not he was too woke or whatever. But actually, quite a lot of the time now, the, the government keeps laying these these sort of culture war traps, which he just sort of gingerly steps around, doesn't fall into a row about uh, statues or, or, or whatever. And so it, it ends up being with the government sort of slightly fighting this war on its own. And it does look strange. It looks out of place, Matt. But it, one of the things I wanted to say was uh, it's a new brand, culture war, but it's nothing new. So you and I, Matt, we, we came through the regional papers. I came through the Western Daily Press. I think I'm right in saying, Matt, you came through the Western Morning News. And routinely, the headlines in the Western Daily Press, which is a great paper, but it was often there was fury across the West last night was the intro <laughs> about whatever the latest, what would now be deemed a cultural war. But 
then wasn't. It, it's nothing new that there are rows being fought. And also the, the territory for these rows changes. Another thing that we're both old enough to remember, Matt, is when, for example, let's take one issue, let's take green uh, issues, environmental issues. The Prime Minister, former Prime Minister David Cameron famously referred to it as green crap. Uh, and there was a various kind of very heated campaigns against wind turbines on land, um, which dominated the conservative debate and did so for some time. And now the debate shifted and, and you can't, the Prime Minister is just embracing wind turbines left, right and centre, and it's all very green. So th they're a, they are a product, they, they've always been part of political history and the political narrative what we debate and what we talk about changes it's just that when you're in the middle of pandemic it feels very very weird yeah and i suppose that's the thing. and also maybe people are slightly more aware of cabinet ministers and that's sort of they've seen them in press conferences and then when you suddenly you know one minute they've been announcing how many people have died and then they're on the telly and they're saying, what are you talking about why are you talking about statues I've, uh, and it, just, it, all, it all just feels a bit weird steve lovely to speak to you as ever uh, despite uh, reminding us that we've both been doing this job for quite a long time now um yes uh steve used to, steve swinford there's a political editor of the times he used to work at the western daily press so their stories would start there was fury across the west and i used to start i used to work at the western morning news and we would start our story there was uh, fury across the West Country because uh, that's how we slightly di divvied up our uh, respective areas. Matt Chorley, mid morning on Times Radio. Culture. Absolutely nobody knows. Yeah, so we've got this polling from YouGov, exclusive polling for Times Radio, which found that only 4% of people could say what the culture war was correctly 76 percent had no idea and loads of other people went off in uh, slightly strange directions let me know what you uh, think about uh, this um eight seven trouble two slightly message of the word times i'll tweet me at times radio i'm now joined by dr matt beach who's the director of the center for british politics at the university of hull hi matt good morning hi uh, and martha gill the common editor of the evening standard hi martha hiya so, Matt, put this into um, uh, the, the historical context. Stephen Swinford, Pritzker, was just talking to us uh, about this and saying it's nothing new. Maybe the, just the phrase culture war is the new label for it. Um, you, you do a whole course uh, on cultural mm. conflicts. Uh, put, explain, this, this isn't anything new, is it? It's not new. <clears throat> There's always been cultural conflicts in, <clears throat> in the United <laughs> Kingdom, in complex societies. But I would say that the cultural conflicts that we're witnessing now the effects of them, you know, really start post-war, and they start really when um, with what we would call the new left. <clears throat> and I and I think the important thing just to say is that broadly speaking, it's quite easy to say, well, look, you know, people don't understand things when you poll them; they're very esoteric. If you go away and poll how many people understand what the Northern Irish Protocol is or what does humanitarian <laughs> interventionism mean, I reckon you get low numbers. But if you polled people and you said, you know, have you ever had to self-censor? Or what do you think of women's only spaces? Or should there be certain books that students don't read at universities? I think ordinary members of the public, not just the Westminster bubble, do have real views about this. Do you or do you think that actually uh, if you said uh, to what extent do you, are you concerned about this, you might get a slightly different. I suppose the, the thing if you are, if you if you push someone into to taking a position because they feel like, well, if somebody's asked me, I ought to maybe I ought, ought to know yeah. something about this. Is it maybe well, just I, not that high in people's in people's minds? When it's an esoteric general stuff like cultural, yeah. I think something's a bit, a bit. But if you if you get down right to the nitty gritty and say, should ta should statues be torn down by mobs or should they be removed and put in museums by local authorities 
you know, should um, people, should, you know, should feminist academics and, and female politicians be disinvited from universities because they have a different view? Should certain books be removed? Should we decolonize curriculums? You know, people have very strong views about things like that. So I don't really accept, and I also think there's probably a bit of a space to try and say, let's depoliticize all this stuff. Let's de you know, I, mean, I completely take the point that we're in a pandemic and we've got to keep the main thing the main thing, absolutely. But at the same time, I think it's quite legitimate for members of the opposition benches and members on the government benches to talk about history, literature, statues, pronouns, women-only spaces, BLM. And for me, when I, when I try and raise these things to my students, I say, what we've got to try and do in an open and free society is find a way to civilly disagree and, and live together in a peaceable way. And for that to happen, first of all, you've got to be allowed to have this pretty much as generous free exchange of ideas as possible. And secondly, you have to understand that a lot of these disagreements come in the post-war, and they're generally speaking between people who are broadly in the Western liberal tradition, that might be social democrats, that might be conservatives, that might be classical liberals, and people who are broadly influenced by the new left and by different forms of Marxism. And we have different values. And uh, you can see that through our political history from, you know, from the 1950s um, onwards, when you think of, you know, those folks who came out of the Communist Party in reaction to what the Soviet Union was doing and the, the new left, the extra parliamentary activity, the student protests. And so this is a story that I think historians of Britain and uh, sociologists are very well versed in. But um, it actually does come down to brass tacks when you when you have massive protests. You say, OK, what are these protests about? What do people yeah. want? Okay, issues of speech, statues, people being invited, women's only spaces, the whole debate about feminism and transgenderism. These are real things. And it's, it, it's fine to say, oh, golly gosh, we're in a pandemic. Let's focus on getting the jabs in people's arms, which is a great thing. Let's invest in the NHS and all this other stuff. It's just frippery. Well, to be honest, I think there's a, a space in the media that actually, you know, is actually quite useful to try and depoliticize political issues. And Because if you depoliticize them, you almost say there shouldn't be any kind of um, criticism or counter voice to, to really legitimate things. I mean, I wouldn't want to be some of the um, academics that are worried about their jobs because they've, you know, p um, posted certain things on a blog or or written certain. I mean, I just I wouldn't want to be that person. I think you know, I think there are legitimate concerns, and I, and I absolutely don't think that there's no fuss about free speeches in universities. And I think I think it's quite right that the uh, that the government's taken this seriously. Okay, let's bring in uh, Martha Gill there. It's really interesting point that Matt was just making. The I suppose is is the issue that individually these are important issues that we we could be discussing, but yeah. wrapping them up. If it's the, sort of the intent, is it because you actually want to sort out and find the correct balance on free speech in universities, or yeah. is it because you're trying to fire up one base one on one side or the other in order to sort of keep the war going, if you like, rather than you know reaching a, a amicable peace? Yeah, I feel like bringing it up in this way is not necessarily going to calm everyone down and have everyone discussing it in a sort of peaceable way, which gets to a conclusion. If you're very much I feel like it is probably the latter that, that they're trying to perpetuate this culture war because they feel it's going to help them. My feeling is on that is that it's not going to help them because post-Brexit, it's all going to be about for the Tories trying to unite disparate groups of Tory voters, only some of whom will agree with them about statues. And in fact, the rest will be repelled by this particular, this particular stance. Um, and, and as you say, some of it is only 
cutting through at the moment on the sort of metropolitan elite level, people on Twitter, people who read about politics and live in cities, uh, we, some of whom are Tory voters, and these are precisely the wrong people um, um, for that message to currently get through. I mean, my, my feeling is there, is there is a really good angle for the Tories to take on this that would help them, which is, and, I, and also a very important um, important one, which is the sort of capricious firing of employees by institutions and companies when they get on the wrong side of the Twitter mob, or yes, indeed, the deplatforming of academics, etc. And, and that's sort of a real problem for Labour and the left, because this is, these are precisely the people they should be trying to protect, you know, employees' rights. Um, but they don't really want to touch it because they are also, their voters are sort of more on the, of the woker side of the argument. So, in fact, the Tories could be really, really confronting Labour over that and trying to make them take a stance. But, but, but that's not what they're doing. They're banging on about statues, which I don't think is going to necessarily help them. <laughs> Is the issue also, uh, Martha, that it sort of it becomes really extreme that you, you're either on one side or the other. And if you're not completely signed up to, you know, all of the views yeah. of one cap, you know, one side of the camera, then you must be a dreadful person who's on the other side of the camera. So if you say, you know, I just the statues, I don't, statues don't offend me. I totally understand yeah. they might offend other people. So like, that's outrageous. You either you either want to chain yourself to one to, to preserve it or you want to tear it down. And, and actually, you know, sometimes the same is a bit the same with, you know, Black Lives Matter. It's an incredibly political campaign. Exactly. Uh, and if you and if you don't sign up to all of it, then you're a racist. That's the you know that sort of that sort of extremism, which you know extremism in politics is never a good thing. Matt, you, you've completely hit the nail on the head. I think the reason we've all come to some kind of consensus on climate change is because no one's really talking about it, because no one's really making it into a culture war. If the Tories were like, right, we think this on, uh, if there was a, a full and you know thorough debate, cultural debate about climate change and whether or not. Uh, you know, people on lower income should be made to buy a expensive boiler, etc. You know, or not. Um, it, it, I think we would have made much less progress on it, and it would be it would we'd be sort of stuck in a stasis where nothing would get done, etc. And uh, and so I think making something into a national discussion is not necessarily a way to advance the argument. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's really interesting. It's really interesting. Uh, Matt, Matt Beach, has the, the issues that you cover in your course, are they changing? Is it, is it, is it difficult for you? I mean, this, this feels like, from an academic's point of view, a bit of a, as you were saying, you know, the, the trouble that other, other academics have, have got into. Is this a bit of a minefield for you to try and teach and discuss? For example, this year I've added BLM onto the syllabus because one can't um, ignore it. Um, the BLM movement um, has been around for a while since sort of like 2012-13 but it's come on to my course I have to put it on my course simply because and I teach at University of Hull and in a very fine department of politics Um, but precisely because it's not just the chattering classes in Westminster that are talking about this and and not just young, young people are interested about it but you know it is it is something in our culture that matters and and uh, so in that sense, yes, um, there are some things that I think are, you know, that, uh, that have been on my course for a couple of years. My course is quite new and it's the most popular, most signed up course in the final year in our department. But it is a controversial course. But it is a controversial course. Um, but um, the, the issues of free speech, the issues of what should a university be for, 
you know, should universities have one kind of goal? Should their goal be like a conception of trying to find truth, scientific truth, or, you know, should it be about social justice? To what extent, um, you know, is there a tension between femi- you know, feminist thinkers and fe- feminist theory and transgender, gen- transgender thinkers? Um, you know, a whole, whole range of, you know, intersectionality. Um, it is a whole, it, these things stay on the course because they are in our culture. And I think if we link it back to Brexit, all I would say is this. Brexit, I think, is more about culture than economics, absolutely. I don't think Brexit naturally fits in the kind of the story that I was trying to explain about post-war and the new left and sort of lib- different forms of liberalism and Marxism. I don't think Brexit really fits into that. I think Brexit's an older story, an older story politically about, you know, who, you know alter at root, who are the British and who did the British want to be? It does come down to things of sovereignty and borders and monies and law. So for me, even though I write a lot about Brexit, I, I, say, I don't think it sits in the, in the story directly that we're talking about. Um, it, it's kind of an offshoot to some extent, but I think really, if you look back to the history of when we even started, when we joined on the 1st of January 1973, for much of the uh, year or 18 months before that, there was huge debates about sovereignty and independence and where was Britain's role in the world. So I think it's a cultural debate about Brexit. Absolutely. It has cut across left, right. Absolutely. But I wouldn't say it's in the same kind of uh, group of culture war issues in terms of speech, the role of the university, books, council culture and all that kind of stuff. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times Radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB Radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box Podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription to get that. Go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. Mm-hmm.